friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. We have a great show for you today. At the bottom of the hour, we have Sebastian Lai. He's the son of Jimmy Lai, the famous Hong Kong entrepreneur and pro-democracy activist who is now serving time in a communist China jail. We are also now looking at the potentiality of Cardinal Zen spending time in a Chinese prison for his unwavering support of the of democracy and the truth in Hong Kong. Sebastian joins us with uh, Mark Simon. He's a friend and former executive of Jimmy Lai's Apple Daily. They have the latest on what is going on in Hong Kong. But first, I have my TCA colleagues, Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire with me to delve into some troubling words by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and a great response from Senator Tim Scott. Welcome back to the show, ladies. That's great. We're always happy to be on with you, Gracie. So, Ashley, last week we had a there was a very interesting altercation that many of our listeners may have watched or seen on YouTube between Janet Yellen and Senator Tim Scott. So, I know that you were very interested in it. Tell our listeners about this altercation on the Senate floor. Well, it was interesting. Uh, she's the Treasury Secretary, and she was mostly talking about economic issues, um, you know, things like inflation that are uh, at the forefront of Americans' minds right now. And she got asked a question that seemed really planted about Roe v. Wade and um, the leak out of the Supreme Court, you know, pointing to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and, you know, what econo- what dire economic consequences would this have? And then she went, and, and the reason I say it looked planted was because she actually read her response off of a piece of paper. Like it was written out word for word. Um, not like she was like, oh, this wasn't a question I was surprising, but sure, let me take it. And the things she said were really shocking. She said things like abortion is good for the labor force. Um, but where it got really shocking, some of it was shocking because she just talked in such plain language about, you know, we need this so that women can have satisfying and fulfilling lives, but then she talked specifically about uh, we need to have abortion because um, poor black women rely on it. And that was particularly startling because, you know, using that those sort of racial tones and especially with, you know, abortion chains like Planned Parenthood trying to dust under the rug the fact that their founder uh, Margaret Sanger was, you know, uh, into eugenics and a total racist, and they've been sort of scrubbing her name off of things. And Senator Tim Scott, who is African American and pro-life, really challenged her. And you know, at first he actually thought, and he's written to this effect in an op-ed um, that she had sort of misspoke and asked her to clarify: Did did you really say abortion is good for? the economy and and did you specifically say that it's um, good for poor black women and and she kind of doubled down and so they had a tense exchange and he said you know I'm I was raised in abject poverty by a single mother and you know I'm glad that I'm here today as a United States Senator and it was just a 
uh, a tale of contrast. And I think really sort of the, the masks are off right now. And it showed where, you know, the pro-abortion side is not even trying that hard to hide the sort of grotesque philosophy that undergirds um, their movement. And, you know, if, if anyone has been an observer of Senator Tim Scott, you know, he's just a sweetheart of a man raised by this hardworking single mother in total poverty in South Carolina, but he grew up to be a United States senator. It's just an incredible story. So I think, Ashley, as you said, he was just stunned when he heard the Treasury Secretary making such a, you know, transactional and callous argument that he questioned her again. He came back later in this hearing. It was a hearing of the Senate Banking Committee. He came back and asked her again, you know, did I mishear you? He said, this sounds harsh. This sounds kind of callous to me. And and she responded. She said, this is not harsh. This is the truth. It means that children will grow up in poverty and do worse themselves. So she clearly was making the argument that the solution to poverty in the black community is abortion to, to take the lives of black children. And it's, you know, we've seen this eugenic um, and callous line of thinking in the pro-abortion movement since its beginning, since Margaret Sanger began Planned Parenthood. This strain has been there in the abortion movement since the beginning, but rarely has it been on such a clear public display, the contrast between the two. You know, myself as a minority, and that's not something that I talk about a lot because I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old-fashioned American in the sense that I really believe that in America... All of us have the same opportunities. I believe that. I've lived it in my life as uh, the same opportunities to flourish and to build beautiful families and to make a, a, a good living to, to support our families. I believe this. I've experienced it. I don't think of myself as a victim. Not at all. But this kind of say, to hear somebody say, these women, because they're minorities, depend on the elimination of their own children in order to get ahead in America. I'm sorry, that's simply not true. It is simply not true, and it, it really burns me up as, <laughs> as a minority to watch Janet Yellen saying that. What we need um, as minority women is what all women need. We need fair and just society that treats women and their fertility and, and their needs, their needs as, as women who... who conceive and give birth and love their children and want to give them beautiful lives, we need our society to treat us that way. And in, in many, many different forms, right? Like we need a society that builds up the family, that builds up male, that builds up male responsibilities so that the men that we have babies with take care of us and marry us and, and love us all our lives. And to me, that's the most important thing. And to, to separate women into different colors and say these separate colored women, because they're minorities, you know, need abortion more, it's, it really burns me up. Well, and Maureen, I feel like you've written about this before, that violence is not the solution to poverty. And it's such a truncated um, idea that we're going to solve real, you know, we do have a problem with poverty in this country. And, you know, we do need to take a closer look, you know, at um, what we can be doing to address the fact that, you know, one in four children in this country go to bed hungry and that, you know, minority women do struggle with lack of access to good health care and, the, you know, the disparity in the um, maternal morbidity and fetal morbidity between 
the different races. I mean, those are real issues, but I liked what Tim Scott said. He said, I want to challenge you to a real conversation. And that is so much more of a, you know, holistic and long-term way to approach the issue as opposed to just offer violence, racially motivated, you know, racially targeted and tailored violence. I mean, it's not, it's not a lie that, you know, abortion clinics are heavily concentrated in minority neighborhoods. So this is not an abstract exchange. This is real life and reality that, that they were talking about. And isn't, isn't there an edge, Maureen, to, to her comments? And you know a lot about this, particularly about the eugenic roots of Planned Parenthood. You've written about it many times. Isn't there a, a eugenic edge to even what Janet Yellen said um, about preventing these children from coming into the world and growing up in poverty. Like, what does that even mean? If there are children who are suffering in poverty, our duty as a society is to help them rise out of poverty, not to eliminate them before they're born. That's exactly right. And that, as I said, that line of thinking has always been present. And even uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg at one time made some sort of a slip in talking about the Hyde Amendment, which prevents taxpayer funding of abortion through the Medicaid program, saying something about we want fewer of these people. So, you know, it's rare that this thought is so starkly, you know, that people sort of admit to thinking this way, but it's, it's very much present. And Senator Tim Scott, as you refer to, Ashley, said, you know, that he challenged Uh, the Treasury Secretary to a real conversation, and then he penned this op-ed in the Washington Post talking about real solutions to poverty that he works on every day in the Senate, you know, tweaking the tax code to be more family-friendly, especially to single parents, and working on opportunity zones, getting, you know, private sector investment in these, you know, the toughest zip codes in America that bring in investments that lead to better wages and, you know, full employment and reduce poverty in the tough neighborhoods. He... Senator Tim Scott is a huge proponent of school choice, of allowing low-income families the opportunity to get out of failing schools in, in the inner cities. And he's also a proponent and wrote about this in his Washington Post op-ed, which I totally commend to all of our listeners, um, about child care and development block grant programs. So he's doing the hard work of actually addressing the, the real causes of poverty rather than relying on abortion as a solution as a barbaric solution to the problems of poverty. Because um, in abortion, you eliminate this potential poor child, right, that's going to come into the world and live a terrible life, which is how they think about it, apparently. But also with abortion, you allow the mother to get right back to work. And that dovetails with another thing that Janet Yellen said. I'm going to quote it to you, Ashley. I'm sure you remember her saying this. I believe eliminating the right of women to make decisions about when and whether to have children would have very damaging effects on the economy. What connection is she making here between abortion and the needs of corporate America? Well, you know, it's interesting because in the in the wake of, the, again, this leak from the Supreme Court, these corporations have been, as if this is some, you know, benefit to women, have been sort of tripping out over themselves to say, well, here's our abortion benefit and we'll fly you here and we'll pay for this and we'll give you a budget of $4,000 to go out of state if need be. And it's, again, it's sort of sad and sick because it's like, well, sure, I mean, if you're Amazon and you offer four months of paid leave, it's going to be a lot cheaper to help a woman to get an abortion than to give her four months of 
uh, time off and maybe help her shift to flex work or to accommodate her as a mother. And um, Erica Bakioki, who I know has been a guest on our show a few times, has written about this extensively, which is that really abortion has actually cost women progress in the workplace because there's a reverse incentive for companies to push things like abortion and, and or delayed childbearing instead of helping women to both flourish in the workplace, you know, and have children, even when it's unexpected or unplanned. Um, and that in, you know, in a, in a post row world, companies really might have to find ways to be more accommodating. And, you know, sure, if it's all dollars and cents and you're Janet Yellen and you're looking at a profit and loss sheet, this might be a little bit more costly in the short term. But I think, you know, those of us who are creative and and can kind of think big, think that, you know, the American economy can envision an American economy where women both flourish um, and do so without, um, you know, basically truncating the, you know, the civil rights of an entire class of people. But it seems like everything in the economy is set up against this vision of women as being able to welcome their own children into the world. I have five children. Putting them through school and especially college has been a tremendous expense, even you know, with, with some assistance from, from the state of Florida, which is very generous, with the Bright Future scholarships, for instance. But um, there really is a sense that both parents have to be working all the time, even when you're lucky enough to have two-parent household. Two parents have to be working all the time just to get two children, you know, out into adulthood. Like, life is so expensive, getting more expensive with inflation. Um, nowadays, you can't even buy, you can't find baby formula. I mean, it seems like we're turning into a European kind of place where people can't afford to have children. People can't afford to move out of their parents' homes and, you know, build their own family. Do you think that it's, I feel like it's, there's a bigger picture here of a society that's not open to the family itself. The family is father, mother, and several children as the children come along. I think that um, part of it is we've become so hyper-individualistic in our economy, and our economy has gotten really skewed towards being all about what can you contribute, what is the, to the point that they even write articles like, this is what a stay-at-home mom would make, which is so demeaning. It's like you, there's mm-hmm. no value you can place on raising children and taking care of a home, but it points to a broader need to shift. I mean, we can still have a free market capitalist economy without making, you know, putting every single person through the lens of what is your output value, which is going to exclude disabled people, the unborn, the elderly, and that sort of is what our culture is now. We we discard the unborn, we, we siphon off the elderly into homes, and the disabled are disappearing from our sight. And you see that kind of utilitarian view of, of, of human beings and Janet Yellen's way of expressing herself, right? I mean, a person in this case is just sort of uh, uh, someone you can switch in and out, but their whole purpose in life is to be productive and produce their little bit for the economy and not let pesky pregnancies and children get in the way of, you know, our roaring American economy. But who's the economy for? (laughs) Like if we have a great roaring economy, but women are having to abort their children and people can't afford to form beautiful families and educate their children, then what are we building this economy for? For, you know, some unmarried 30-something-year-olds who live in all the cosmopolitan centers and have these fabulous lives and have the peloton bicycles? 
I mean, what's it for? Right. And and our culture of reliance on abortion has actually prevented us from building a, a culture of more authentic women's flourishing mm-hmm. that embraces the fact that we are, you know, we're the it's women who bring forth the next generation of life. And, um, you, you know, even the eco- economic arguments that Janet Yellen made are quite contested. And in fact, Erica Bakioki and Helen Alvray and 240 other female scholars submitted a brief in the Dobbs case that show that upon deeper study, uh, the opposite of what Yellen was arguing is true, that uh, women's advancement since Roe versus Wade is due to other things like equal pay laws and, you know, other things, not not abortion. And, you know, I, I always I always like to quote Elon Musk when it comes to um, <laughs> this, because years ago, you know, he's a guy who sees into the future. Right. Many, many years ago, Elon Musk was talking about how the greatest threat to our economy is not not overpopulation, which was sort of, you know, the prevailing view at the time. He said the greatest threat to our economy is actually population collapse. You know, our fertility rates are so low now. Our culture has become so inhospitable to children that, you know, no less than Elon Musk says that the greatest threat to our economy is the coming population collapse. I think about this all the time because my, as I've mentioned on the show several times, because I talk about my my own personal life too much, I'm sure, that my father's very sick with ALS and there's four siblings and, you know, almost 20 grandchildren and we all take care of him. It's a huge job and, but we're all there for him. Very soon, we're going to have an America where there are going to be so many, many, many thousands, hundreds of thousands of older people with terrible diseases and no one to take care of them like we take care of my dad. I mean, this is a population collapse and abortion, this uh, no holds barred abortion thing that the left is pushing is just another way of denying the reality that we need children. We need the next generation on a, on a thousand levels, you know, to flourish as, as a human society. Um, you know, I was just in a doctor's appointment yesterday and, and the doctor who's older and his kids are grown, he said, I have two kids. I'm jealous of you. You have four. And it made me think I've never heard anybody say they wish they had less kids, but I have heard more times than I can remember of families of all size, one, two, three, four, five people saying they wish they had had one or two more. And it's one of those kind of, you know, lessons or wisdoms that if, if you, if you, stop and listen you'll hear is everywhere that people nobody regrets the children they have they re, if anything they regret not having a few more and they realize you know back to the point about the economy that when you get older um you stop caring as much about how much money you make and that cruise you could have gone on and and the the things that give you true meaning and fulfillment begin with your family um, and so it's, it's just another sort of tragedy that we don't um, talk about that more. I mean, again, there's, there's a whole demographic and economic conversation to be had about it, but then there's also the sort of uh, human fulfillment component of it, um, which is that, you know, truly it is, it is family that um, brings us the most satisfaction. I think I even saw a poll once a study or a poll that said the average person wishes they had like one, it's like a uniform across the board, wishes they had like 
one more kid. Kind of like somebody, I think Arthur Brooks talked about, you know, when you pull people, everybody, no matter how much money they have, say they wish they had 20% more. That's what they say they need to be happy. Um, <laughs> that's like one more vacation. That's like one nice vacation a year. So yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. They, people say they wish they had one more kid. Two more kids. Yeah. And that's a very short-sighted, uh, yeah, we're making short-sighted decisions. Something like what Janet Yellen's talking about. You know, let's, it's very short-sighted to think of human beings uh, of their human capital as being purely economic, you know, in a sense of how much, you know, how many widgets will they be able to produce at the factory when they're 22? That's not the way to think of human beings. And maybe this brings me to something else we were hoping to get to, and we have a few more minutes left. We were hoping to talk about a, an, an article that we read in The Atlantic last week, Why American Teens Are So Sad. And you listeners might want to look that up. It's very interesting. Um, and I was thinking that part of the reason American teens, which we know are having these skyrocketing uh, mental health, uh, depression, anxiety issues, and even suicidal uh, ideations are rising and rising amongst teens, is they don't see a clear, desirable future for themselves. Like maybe they're also struggling with understanding what they're supposed to want, right? Especially to me, I think, especially of young girls, like, am I supposed to want to be this amazing professional who's just living, you know, in my cool apartment and jetting off on the weekends with friends? Or am I supposed to want um, a lovely family? And am I able to, you know, balance those two things? It's a very hard world that our young children are facing. I mean, that's just a tiny aspect of it, obviously. Yeah, this article, uh, any parent out there should read this because it's, it's really interesting and it's really alarming. And I think a lot of us feel this in our gut, but, um, but the authors of the article point to several things, some of which we, you know, think about a lot, some of which maybe we haven't thought about, but, but it, it's really an astro astronomical number of, of teenagers who are, have these in the studies words, persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. As they say 44%, that's almost half of American teens. It's the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. And, and it said over the past year that, uh, 20, over 25% of girls have seriously contemplated attempting suicide. And there's just something so uh, culturally wrong if this is the case. And, you know, the authors point to social media use, but they also point to not just the actual effects of social media use, but the effect of it taking up the time that prevents them from doing other healthy things like spending time in person or, um, you know, even getting their driver's license. Fewer teenagers get their, even bother to get their driver's license. Um, fewer of them are playing youth sports. They're not hanging out together. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in here, but, but the article talks about how just even the world is so stressful and our 24 hour news cycle, which focuses on the negative and how we as parents are kind of ingesting a lot of that. And, you know, the sense of doom that, that teenagers are absorbing. Um, the article also, also talks about modern parenting strategies, which tend to sort of protect children um, in many ways rather than, um, more of sort of like an accommodative approach to parenting rather than exposure therapy is, is what it's called. But, you know, like if a, if a girl is afraid of dogs, parents 
today would tend to keep her away from dogs mm-hmm. rather than In our letting day. her play with puppies. <laughs> but yeah, letting her play with puppies to sort of get used to it. Or, you or know, just disregarding, maybe disregarding certain small um, likings and dislikings of children, which forces them to, you know, face their face their, their fears in a way that they can right. walk away from. Right, it, it teaches them resiliency. Our, mm-hmm. You know, our culture today caters to this fragility and victimhood rather than rather than teaching resilience. Yeah, but at the same time, we're offering our children very few paths forward that make sense for them, right? So maybe they do look into the future and say, well, not, none of this makes sense. How am I supposed to be all these different things that I'm told I ought to be? Do you think that could be part of it? What do you think, Ashley? Your children are younger than ours. Well, the only thing I would say is certainly in this area, the greater D.C. area, and I'm sure this is true in a lot of, like, metropolises, you know, back to our conversation about the way the economy is so hyper-focused on what can you produce, how much money you make. You know, the schools here, the best schools, um, the elite schools, they just seem like factories, like conveyor belts for sending kids to the Ivy Leagues and then into, um, you know, these certain types of jobs. And it just seems different than when I was in high school. And I was fortunate to go to an elite high school where it was about learning, like just learning and critical thinking and sort of discovering your interests. And I don't know if maybe that's part of it is that teens already feel a sort of objectification of our sort of hyper individualistic kind of late stage capitalist economy. Like there's only one way to succeed. That's what they're being taught. This is, this is how you're going to succeed right at school. And, and there's all these expectations, but that's not, it's a very cookie cutter approach. It can't work for, for so many people. Um, that's sad for American teens. You know, there are a lot of a lot of things um, going on right now uh, culturally that that bear looking at. Especially if you have parent, if you have children of any age, um, grandchildren, people that you can influence who are younger. You know, understanding the pressures that young people have, um, and even understanding these these big economic factors and and how our our, our culture, which is not a culture of life. And, and welcoming and hospitality is affecting them and, and being able to, you know, talk to them about these these deep issues. Maybe we maybe if if you think about it and, and you understand it and then talk to them, you might be the only person talking to them on a way that, that could help them. I see this myself sometimes when I when I talk to I don't know, nieces or nephews and, and I can see that they're Nobody has talked to them about sort of the, the, the philosophy of life that, that surrounds them and how they're supposed to deal with it. But thank you, ladies. I, I, I think we're out of time. We are out of time. And um, thank you so much for having this, this great team chat. I hope our listeners enjoyed it. And, and I hope that um, they join us again next week. Thanks, Gracie. Thanks for having us on as your co-hostesses. <laughs> to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you once again for joining us this week and taking part of our conversation as the news of Cardinal Zen being arrested by the Chinese Communist Party. He is a Cardinal of Hong Kong for the Catholic Church. 
um, and he was arrested along with several human rights activists, sending a chill through the Catholic community of Hong Kong and of course through the Catholic community of the whole world and really anyone who um, understands the great threat that the Chinese Communist Party poses to a little place like Hong Kong. Um, today, we are very fortunate to have the son of Jimmy Lai, Sebastian Lai, who just accepted an honorary degree for his father from the Catholic University of America. His father is the great entrepreneur and activist of Hong Kong, Jimmy Lai. So to give you a little background on that, Jimmy Lai founded a clothing brand called Giordano, built that up uh, into a giant industry, eventually buying the newspaper Apple Daily. And uh, he has become, in the last few years, a very, a very vocal critic of the Communist Party. He was arrested in August of 22 of 2020. Uh, an arrest, a conviction, and an arrest, which he called the pinnacle of his own life. Amazingly, he is a Catholic convert. He got a 14-month sentence in April of 2021 for organizing protests. He's a great champion of the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong in 2020. Hong Kong uh, passed a new national security law which criminalizes acts of, of speech that were previously considered protected in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is this amazing place. It has the 35th largest economy in the world, this tiny island, with tremendous amount of not only economic freedom, but political freedom, freedom of speech on the British model. And then suddenly it's being taken over by China. And of course the Hong Kongese, the Hong Kongese, um, they hoped that they could maintain their freedoms because to be ruled by China, by the Chinese Communist Party, is terrifying. Since the Chinese took over the country, there's been mass emigration. At one point in 2019, there were mass protests. And in short, the people in Hong Kong understand what's going on and they understand what's at stake. Again, in 2020, this national security law was, was passed and it was used to convict um, this great entrepreneur and activist and pro-democracy champion, Jimmy Lai. Now, also Cardinal Zen was taken into custody. He has since been released, but this is what is facing the people of Hong Kong. No religious liberty, no liberty before the law to defend oneself, to speak freely, to, to protest against draconian and unjust laws. That's where the communists go. That's, that's how the people are treated. Um, so, with all that, thank you for letting me give you and me a refresher. We would like to welcome to the show Jimmy Lai's son, um, Sebastian, and also Mark Simon. He's a very good friend and confidant of Jimmy, who worked with him at Apple Daily, which is Jimmy's newspaper outlet. Welcome to the show, Mark and Sebastian. Thanks, Rod. Thanks for having us. Sure. It's it's actually a huge honor. Sebastian, we've been following the, the case of your father, your incredibly brave father, who has been something of a beacon of, of hope uh, in, in human, in, in the kind of valor that, that human beings can show in the face of tremendous opposition. Me, personally, I'm, 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 in, I'm just overwhelmed with admiration for your father. We know that he's now serving time hopefully not many more months since he's been there for a while and um, and we wanted to hear from you um, how he's doing and what are the conditions that he's being held in um, so yeah so again thanks thanks a lot for having us um, on your show I communicate with my dad uh, through letters and he, he, he seems to be doing okay to be honest he's uh, uh, you know religion has helped him a lot and um, 
yeah, I mean, in, in the the conditions that he's held in, he he, he seems to be doing relatively okay. Uh, at least from my understanding. Obviously, we, we, we talk about other stuff as well. Uh, you know, I try, I try not to focus letters too much on, on, on his when incarceration. But um, religion has helped him a lot and has really been his pillar, I think, well, you know, during this, 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 this hard time. I read that he said that this occurrence, uh, being accused and then convicted and then, and then sent to prison, is the pinnacle of his, of his own life. And I was very impressed with that. And, and it does seem to me to point to a, a religious understanding of his life as, as bigger than just him, that, that life has uh, this, this whole eternal part to it, and that he's willing to, to put his material life um, at, the, at the feet of, of this larger purpose. I, I, I think, um, um, obviously, there's, there's two levels to that, right? What, you know, your material life is how you, you, you feel everything. I mean, it's, that's how it's what happens. It's what's happening to, the, to you at this very second. Um, and so, you know, like everybody's still human, right? I mean, it's still, it's still a very, uh, um, uh, what happens to you at that very moment is, is still, it's, it's still happening and no, no matter who you are. I, but I, I think, and, and again, this is my interpretation of what, what he said, I mean, you know, knowing how he is as a person is that he, 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 he knows that, you know, if, if you don't stand up for what you believe in, um, and and you know if you're willing to compromise your your morality for uh, a, a money or, or or even even comfort, it's it's it, it really does. He really he feels like it, it'll, it'll make his life uh, and all his achievements uh, um, meaningless. It, it, it will really be um, uh, it will really be a sad state if he, if 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 he's he's willing to sort of fall to. Uh, these ideals that he 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 is against just because just because he fears, and um, that's that's really who he is. Wow, and that's I think even um, more um, impressive, um, knowing what he is able to give up or the parts of his life that most people don't enjoy, the ability to travel, and he was able to leave. He would have he could have left the country if he wanted, and I know he has citizenship uh, at, in the UK as well, but he was um, brave enough. To, to give all that up, um, I've known I've known many men who've who've done courageous things like that. I'm Cuban, and um, I've known many people who've stood up against that communist dictatorship and ended up spending years in jail. And um, they they these people like your father are, are few and far between, but they do yeah. they are people who who are beacons for others. Because all of us have these all of us have these hopes that we could be brave like that, but not all of us are able to do that. So knowing that people like your father exist and are so visible to others, I think is a is a is a very beautiful thing, and it and it helps all of humanity. And I'm sure you felt like that when you were receiving that award in Catholic University that he got last week, an honorary degree. What do you think your father would think of this? And what was what was it like in the university when you received it? I'm sure, I'm sure dad will be uh, very grateful for this award. Uh, you know, I, as I mentioned, the, the Catholic faith uh, has been um, has been incredibly important to him. And um, actually, it, it actually comes from um, uh, uh, it actually comes from my grandmother, so my my, my uh, maternal grandmother, who uh, uh, was Catholic and then converted my grandfather, and then so my mom was very Catholic, and that, that's how he became Catholic. Oh. And so, yeah, so it's, it's quite a funny story actually, but you know, I'll, I'll leave that for another time. <laughs> but but um, he, 
he'd be he'd be incredibly honoured, uh, and and you know me receiving the award on his part was was uh, I mean I was I was very moved by that. It, it was it was a beautiful uh, ceremony, and you know all, all these all these people graduating as well. Um, uh, so so for us it was extremely moving. Every everybody there was extremely kind, and um, you know you, you you can really feel the the. That sort of the sort of faith in in, in, in this um, in this whole act. So I I, I think he. I mean I, I'm sure he'd be very. I mean I'm sure he's, he is very happy about this award. Mark and you worked alongside Jimmy at Apple Daily and are, I'm sure I think our very close friend and a confidant of Jimmy's. What was it like um, working with someone who was so dedicated to the pursuit of truth, even in the face of obvious huge danger to himself? Oh, well, it was easy, actually, because you always knew where he stood. In other words, you don't have to guess with Jimmy. You know what he's going to do. You makes your life as a manager for him easy in the business sense, but also was, you know, quite awe-inspiring. Mr. Lai knew very well on that they were going to come and get him. We had discussions about this really starting, quite frankly, in the fall of 2019, uh, you know, we knew that they were coming for him. He has, you know, we were the we're the one of the we're the largest news media organization in Hong Kong and one of the largest in Taiwan. Of course, we have contacts and government officials with people in China, and he knew very well they were coming to get him. That's what I try to always focus people on. This guy knew they were coming. There mm-hmm. were any a conversation we had where we you know subject where you know he was asked to get out and he told me no and there many a comp- friend who came to see him and told him time to leave. This man's a very brave man. And so when you're standing there in the face and, and looking at a guy who's basically decided to do something, what you try to do is support him in every way you can and, you know, and, and, and not fail him. And so that's what we're hoping we can do is to, you know, help Jimmy in any way we can. And, and you, Mark, or you, Sebastian, and the rest of his family, were you tempted to try to talk him out of it? In trying to talk him out of uh, into leaving the country and keeping himself safe? I think I tried about 15 times to be perfectly. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, nobody sits there and says, oh boy, I'd like you to be a martyr for all of us. No, <laughs> of course I tried. Of course I tried to talk to you. His best friends tried to tell him to leave. That's why they're his friends, because they're looking out for him personally. But he had a greater cause, and he also had solidarity with, you know, these people. He, as he said, we ran the largest news media, one of the, the largest news media organization in Hong Kong, digital and print combined. And, you know, he stated his position, and he was going to live through with it. And, and was Apple Daily at that point the last really real pro-democracy journal in, in the area? The mass, the last mass, the last mass one. But we'd really been the last mass mass media pro-democracy for you know honestly 15 years so you know it wasn't it wasn't like just one day everybody was intimidated i mean the mainland and their allies had bought up pretty much everything it doesn't mean there were bad journalists at other places and it didn't mean that people had bouts didn't have bouts of courage but yeah if you're looking for the one pro-democracy newspaper that on a mass scale, a large scale, it was us. And there were also some, but there was a lot of brave, smaller ones too that came along. There's the Hong Kong Free Press in English. There was the Stand. There were other ones. And those, some of those people are in jail now. Wow. Yeah. And it was, it was in 2020 when they passed, when Hong Kong passed the national security law that you must have known that everything was coming to, to a point. I mean, you always know that, look, 
if when you're across from you know the CCP, you always have an idea of something they're going to do. But I mean, it, it, we're not clairvoyant. You know, we were hoping that we could keep working and keep fighting and keep and keep doing these things. But no, the idea that they were going to be the the idea that they would be willing to kill Hong Kong economically to get what they want. You know, we look we that we came to that revelation revelation, I think, with everybody else. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, the, the one person who, quite frankly, did really call this Jim, Jimmy, there was really there was two that I know the two people who did know how severe this could be were Jimmy and Cardinal Zinn. Cardinal Zinn was Cardinal Zinn was telling people, you know, if you're young, get out as quickly as you can all the way through, you mm-hmm. know. And Cardinal Zen has just recently gone through his own arrest and was released, I think, on bail a couple days ago. And That's right. he was running the, or he was helping with the Humanitarian Relief Fund, 612, I think it's called, 612 Humanitarian yeah. Relief Fund. And he, they were giving financial and legal assistance to people who were prosecuted for protesting in 2019, just like Jimmy, correct? Yes, yes. So these were people that didn't have Jimmy's um, resources and, and his stature in the in, in, in society to fight back. And now they've he's been in jail. He's been taken um, and released. And I suppose we can expect him to be convicted under the same law. Do you think? I, well, I mean, it's an automatic if they put you in the courtroom, it's an automatic conviction. No one they're 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 undefeated so far. Let's just put you <laughs> So they've got a perfect record of convictions, and I'm sure if they want to keep a perfect record, they would. But look, Cardinal Zinn's no shrinking violet either. You know That's what I'm saying? Right. I mean, look, Card- I, if they put Cardinal Zinn in jail, then his only regret would be that he can't minister to his his flock and and, the, and, and his people outside of there. And just so everybody knows, the day after Cardinal Zinn was arrested, Cardinal Zinn was back out visiting people in prisons. Really? know he's 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 he i've known cardinal zinn for you know close to 21 22 years and uh, spent spent some time with him traveling around he he, he, again he's a very easy person to deal with because you know exactly where he stands he hasn't ever changed and you know there's a the thing about cardinal zinn that i think people have to understand and also about jimmy is how compassionate they are Mm -hmm. in other words they're not these are not people standing up screaming at the moon. They basically have this strong will and a belief based in logic, experience, and their faith. Yeah. And, and I think that's why they are so dangerous. They're, you're not dealing with angry men. As Wadsworth said, these are happy warriors. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they know they, they, they know what they believe. It's an amazing thing to sit there and talk to them. I mean, I, I have to tell you, uh, you know, the dinners at Jimmy's house, the lunches, you know, the coffees with Cardinal Zen. I mean, when you look back on them and you remember what they were saying and know the knowledge that they had about what was going to happen, it's amazing. And has Cardinal Zen been able to visit Jimmy in prison? Previously, before the conviction, but uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't, we don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And, and so, you know, in all honesty, we, you, it's one of these things you don't ask. If he sees him, he sees him. You know, we don't, we don't. Okay, it's not something you advertise for the for the safety of everyone involved. We, we, we wouldn't we wouldn't ask. In other words, I, I know this is, I mean, you're Cuban, so you'd understand. Why would you ask a question mm-hmm. when you get somebody in trouble? That's right. 
And what about um, what are your feelings about the Catholic, the Vatican, in relation to all this, and especially in the face of Cardinal Zen being um, aggressed like this, a cardinal in the Catholic Church? As a layperson, I'm extremely unhappy. As somebody who deals with China, I'm kind of amazed that they're so unwise. In other words, they've they've just been taken advantage of so greatly, and mm-hmm. and, and just they they're actually you've reached the point now where even those most charitable to China in every other way are, are they, they're well aware whether the Holy Father and the Vatican are, are basically being taken to the cleaners. Well, we will see if the Vatican does say anything as the news breaks that Cardinal Zen is expected to appear in court next week to defend himself from these charges. Although, as Mark tells us, um, the actual fate of Cardinal Zen is probably already written down in stone somewhere with the Communist Party and the way it operates. We will pray for him, of course, as well as Jimmy Lai and all our Chinese brothers and sisters who are suffering greatly at the hands of the Communist regime, whether on mainland China or in Hong Kong. Thank you so much for your time today, Sebastian Lai. Please take our prayers back to your father in your next letter. And Mark Simon, thank you for your continued efforts in keeping democracy alive in the freedom of the press. God bless you both. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Throughout the Easter season, the Church has us focused on how Jesus intends us to share in the newness of life that comes from our communion with Him, risen from the dead. In the Sunday's Gospel, Jesus talks to us about two things He died and rose from the dead to give us, love and peace. Our hearts were made for love and for peace. We'll remain restless until we have them. But love and peace are not things that we can just wish into existence. No matter how many songs and poems we write about them, or talk and dream about them, they're realities that cannot be conjured or fabricated. We'll not truly experience them until we follow the means Jesus describes in the Gospel. He was the Prince of Peace, and who was love personified, tells us this Sunday the path to obtain both love and peace. But before we examine what he says, it's important for us to focus on the stakes. Up until now, as I've been preaching this homily, there's been a siren running in the background of a police car here in New York City. We live in a world that is torn by the lack of peace. It's easy to point to the Russian atrocities taking place in Ukraine, but there are also horrible conflicts taking place in Ethiopia, Yemen, Afghanistan, Myanmar, Mali, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mozambique, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, northern Nigeria, and even the West Bank and the Holy Land. In several communist countries, China, Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, the people live oppressed in fear of imprisonment and death. Even in the United States, there's a lack of peace. As 18-year-olds murder innocent people in Buffalo supermarkets, those clamoring for social change torch cars and businesses. Pro-life offices are burned down by Molotov cocktails. Churches suffer vandalism. And hundreds of thousands of our littlest brothers and sisters in the womb 
have their lives gruesomely terminated in what becomes a maternal tomb. This lack of peace is one of the most obvious manifestations of a lack of love, in which you objectify, label, dehumanize, and oppose others, rather than will their good. But it's not the only sign of a crisis of love. So many people today just don't feel they're loved. St. John Paul II famously said at the beginning of his pontificate, Man cannot live without love. He remains a being incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless if life isn't revealed to him, if he doesn't encounter love, if he doesn't experience it and make it his own, if he doesn't participate intimately in it. People suffer when they don't experience the love of a mom and dad, especially when they're young. They suffer when they experience rejection from those on whom they have a crush as young people. They suffer when relationships, engagements, even marriages break up. They suffer when they have only utilitarian friendships and contacts. They suffer when they're alone. Some, out of suffering the lack of love, try to distract themselves through addictions to booze and drugs, others to porn and fantasy, others to promiscuity. Others tired of living without love think that others won't care and try to draw attention to their pain and loneliness by taking their lives. The crisis of love is real and enormously costly to individuals and all of society. In response to the yearnings for peace and love, Jesus speaks to us today in the Gospel. He describes the path to find love and make peace. It's important that we listen to him with fresh ears. About love, he tells us that love isn't something that just happens to us, but is the result of a choice. A choice first on God's part, and then a choice on ours. St. John said in his first letter, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us first and sent his Son as an expiation for our sins. But for us to receive that love, we can't be passive. We open ourselves up to receiving it by giving it. Jesus tells us in the Gospel this Sunday, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Love is not a feeling, Jesus says, but an action. To keep his word in faithful communion with the one who gives us that word. Jesus expanded upon this thought later in the same Last Supper discourse when he said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This link between love and the commandments is something that many in the world, even in the church, have forgotten. Because so often we look at the commandments as burdens, as onerous duties, rather than as a tremendous divine gift to help us grow in love. There's a similar link between keeping the Lord's commandments and genuine peace in our hearts, and in the world. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. The peace Jesus came from heaven and earth to give us and leave with us is peace with God through the forgiveness of our sins. To experience that peace, we have to keep God's commandments, because breaking the commandments is what alienates us from that peace, something about which a well-trained conscience will always alert us. Peace in the world, moreover, will only come about if we have this type of peace in our hearts through keeping the commandments. This is a point that is less obvious than it should be. But just think what our world would be like if we all just minimally kept the Ten Commandments. Everyone would center his or her life on God rather than on selfish pursuits. People would come together to pray and worship God. There would be no swearing. Parents and children would honor each other. There would be no hatred or murder, no broken family, no cheating, no robbery, no lying, no personal or class envy. 
we know that that would be a world far more peaceful than the one we now have. Why then do so many in the world and even in the church fail to see this clear connection between love, peace, and keeping God's commandments? I think it's because we have a false notion of freedom, one that makes us look at the commandments as something that enslaves us rather than liberates us. Many of us think that to be free, we have to be able to do whatever we want, to be able to call the shots, to be in control, to be totally unrestrained by anything outside of us, even the truth, even God. We view the commandments and the God who gives them to us as limits on our freedom, impelling us to do things that perhaps we might not want to do. But this type of freedom is an idolatry of the self. It's based on pretending that we're God, that we're the ones in charge, that we're the ones who ought to know what's best for us. The real notion of freedom is not to do whatever we want to do, but to do what we ought to do, to do what we've been created to do, namely to love God and love others without shackles. Jesus pointed to this when he linked freedom to the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, he says. The only way to be free is to live in the truth of how God made us, which he indicates to us by the commandments. The Ten Commandments are like God's instruction manual on the path to perfection as a human being, to achieve the purpose for which God created us. To find love, peace, and happiness, we need to acknowledge and follow what God has programmed, we could say, into our hearts. The code he has placed into the DNA of a properly formed conscience and reiterated in the clearest way possible in giving us the commandments. At the Mass we're preparing to attend this Sunday, we will receive within the Prince of Peace. We'll consume the summit of God's love, Christ's body given and blood shed for us. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will come to make their dwelling with us. As we faithfully follow the Lord's command to do this in His memory, we ask Him to send the Holy Spirit upon us anew, that we may be strengthened to keep all of His commandments in genuine freedom, and thereby experience in this world and the next the peace and love He died to give us. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 